0: Hello, who's there? How <laughs> I mean, Who's your mom? Hey, who's your dad? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Two Crees in a Pod. My name is Amber Dion, and I'm from the Kahewan Cree Nation right here in Treaty 6 territory. I'm a mother, I'm a social worker, and I'm also an assistant professor with McEwen University School of Social Work, and I am joined by my lovely co-host.
1: Hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> My English name is Terry Sanjens. I'm from Sally Cree Nation and I am the Director of Indigenous Initiatives in
0: Kio Weston at McEwen University. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to the conversations. Uh, welcome to episode 5 of Two Crees in a Pod. Uh, Today, we're really thankful to have uh, a special guest with us, uh, Mr. Jose Aliano. uh, Jose, I messed that up already. Um, Jose, what's Ariano. Thank you. Ariano. I
2: pronounce it wrong myself.
0: Well, us Cree speakers don't have that role of the R. We don't do that. The R? (laughs) We don't do that. (laughs) Um, I've already got that, actually. I don't don't speak Spanish,
2: for the record, (laughs) Um, for the record. What?
0: What was that? (laughs) She was giving you a Cree joke. Don't worry, we'll have lots of jokes. Um,
2: Okay.
0: And so Jose uh, is a, or sorry, the Director of Case Management and Navigation at Homeboy Industries. Uh, I first met Jose, and he's saying thank you to someone. Uh, I first met Jose uh, when I was out in Los Angeles. How many years ago was that? At least five or six years ago. (laughs) Uh, and we were doing a tour of uh Homeboy yeah. industries, and I met Jose then, and then also have um, heard from him, heard his story multiple times, or or different pieces of his story through the healing communities conference, uh that I've attended in t- attended in Los Angeles multiple times, and so um we're really thankful that you're here joining us today, Jose. Uh, we want to hear more about you. And so, what we want to do is open it up at this point for you to introduce yourself in whichever way you would like to, and uh, and then we're gonna kind of roll into some questions that we have.
2: Oh, thank you, Amber. Um, no, thank thank you guys for having me. Um, it's it's really amazing to be able to feel connected um, to such a you know kind of a far far away place like Canada. But um, yeah, so from the the time I met you, just seeing um, an indigenous strong women that was a leader um off the top it was something that really caught my attention you know to see the way that you came down presenting yourself and so um it's definitely an honor to be on your show and i'm grateful for it um for you know any space where they allow me to tell my story because i believe that there's power in us owning our story and telling our story um you know and being also you know the writers of our stories so thank you once again um my story uh You know, starts way back when, you know, my mother was a gang member and kind of everybody, everybody in my household uh, pretty much was from, you know, we were all from the same gang. And my mother was a young gang member. And so in L.A., like the culture of of gangs, you know, most of the time uh, gang members are recruiting males. So when you're a woman and you join a gang it's kind of radical you know and it's also you know a, a very extreme experience for women that join gangs they gotta pretty much you know suit up and show up and, and and really exalt that that they're 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 with the business when it comes to that lifestyle so my mom being an active gang member having me when she was young wasn't really able to give me you know the attention that I needed growing up But see, I didn't know all that back then. You know, a lot of that stuff I realized, you know, coming to Homeboys. I came to Homeboys seven years ago, fresh out of prison, um, doing two terms back to back, four years and then six years back to back terms with like five months in between. Um, And I pretty much grew up in the system. The first time I ever got locked up was at the age of 15. I got out. I was busted for like four months. I got out and I went back when I was 16 and I didn't get out again until I was 18 at 18 i caught you know my my adult case got out when i was 22 and i went right back in like five months later and you know spent my 23rd birthday in the county jail fought that case for two years and i eventually uh was sentenced to six years with 85 percent and so i had been living this life for so long i thought it, 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 it is who i was you know what i mean but after i got sentenced to that six years i got to state and when i got to the state my mother died and when my mother died it was like a a part of me died with her you know and i and i believe that that was my childhood you know that died with her that all those things i wanted to kind of you know be able to restore one day hoping that we were going to have a relationship like a mother-son relationship when she passed away was pretty much like i knew that that day would never come where we would be able to mend our relationship and have something that i should have had when i was a kid um but when she died something inside of me broke and i began to like question the life that i was living like how did i get to this point you know and not immediately immediately i began to you know self-harm got caught up in drugs um and really the only way i knew how to express myself in there violently you know ended up going to the hole multiple times and it was on one of my trips to the hole that, you know, I couldn't run from this pain. You know what I mean? I had so much pain and I had missed her so much. And, and being in prison wasn't able to really talk about how I felt inside. But I remember being in the hole and, um, like, I would go to sleep and, and I would I would cry myself to sleep at night. You know what I mean? And I was wondering, like, what's happening to me? You know, I thought I was losing my manhood. I thought, I thought something was happening to me and I didn't know how to respond to it. But i remember looking in the mirror looking in the mirror one one day and looking at myself and i'm all tatted up you know and, and i'm looking at myself and i didn't even recognize my reflection and i asked myself you know internally, like who the fuck are you
1: mm-hmm.
2: like who are you and how did you get to this point you know what i mean and i remember thinking back on my childhood and in that little tiny cell i started to remember when i was a kid I used to sit in front of the television. I would watch this show and it was called Family Matters. Do you guys remember Family yes. Matters with Steve
0: Urkel?
2: Yes. And I remember being a kid. I would watch that show and I would sit in front of the TV and I would yearn for a family that I saw on that sitcom. I remember like yearning for a father and a mother and, and just all those dynamics, like eating dinner together. And now I'm, You know i'm a grown man and and i'm I'm a gang member and and i'm a a prisoner and i'm in the hole and i'm yearning for that life again i remember being in that little cell thinking like man i I wish that things could have been different i wish i could have told my mother how i really felt about her because our relationship our relationship had become estranged because i was so hurt i didn't want to ever express to her how how i really felt about her because i was afraid she was going to hurt me again Hmm. so You know, there was times where my mom went from being a gang member to being a drug addict. And there was times where she was in the neighborhood and the homies would tell me, hey, your mom's, you know, she's down the street getting high. You should probably go check on her. And I would tell them, I don't have a mother, homie. Like, I don't have a mom, you know. But that's just how hurt I was. And I didn't understand my pain until later on in life. But So fast forward, um, I get out of prison. And I had, like, this, like, there was this voice inside of me telling me, like, you know don't die like this don't die you know in prison and and I didn't want to die like that but I still didn't know what to do with all that you know what I mean I didn't know what to do with the information I was starting to find myself acquiring so I came home and I just wanted to do the right thing you know I wanted to get a job and so I called down to homeboys got the number called down to homeboys and I remember calling and a homie answers the phone and he's like homeboy industries how can I help you And I tell him, hey, I'm looking for a job. You know, are you guys hiring? He's like, well, let me ask you a few questions. I'm like, all right. And he goes, "Um, have you ever been involved in gangs? You know, and I'm on the phone with this dude. I'm like, yeah, I'm from a gang. You know, I'm answering. (laughs) I'm being honest. I'm like, yeah, I'm from a gang. And he goes, "Um, have you ever been locked up before? And I'm tripping on his questions. You know, I'm like, yeah, I just got out, actually. He's like, all right. And he goes, "Um, are you on probation or parole? And, you know, tripping out, right? And I go, yeah, uh, I'm on parole. And I'm being honest. And I'm even tripping out on how honest I'm being with this dude. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, I'm on I'm on parole. I'm on high-control parole. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he says, all right, he says, one more question. Um, do you have any visible tattoos? And I remember holding the phone, looking at myself. And back then, I had this whole arm was sleeved up, my hands, my face. I was all tattooed. back. And I remember looking at myself. And I go, yeah, homie, I'm all tatted up. And he goes, yeah, we'll we'll give you a job. And I remember holding the phone away from my ear. And I'm like, what the fuck? Like, what is that? <laughs> um, and I said, are you playing with me? You know, are you being serious? And he goes, nah, homie, for real. Like, we'll, we'll give you a job. Can you come down here today? And I remember walking up and looking in. You've been here before. I don't know, have you ever been here before, Terry? Well, Amber, you've been here before. You know how it looks when you first walk up. And it's kind of intimidating, you know. There's these big old windows top to bottom, big windows so you can see right inside. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking up, and I look inside, and I see gang members everywhere. You know, fool's tatted up, face, head, everything. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this place ain't for me. Mm -hmm. But because of my experience that I've had with gang members, you know, it's, it's always been negative experiences. And, and so I truly believe that our experiences, they shape us. Mm-hmm. You know, the experiences we have as children, they shape us. They shape the way we see ourselves and they shape the way we see the world. Mm-hmm. So I come in and the homie in the front, Mario, who works in the cafe, he's all tatted back. And I mean, this one has tattoos on his eyelids. Exactly. I mean, he's all tatted. <laughs> he has the most tattoos I've ever seen in my life. And I notice him notice me. And I'm sitting in the lobby. And I notice him notice me, you know, and he begins to approach me. And, and I go, you know, I'm filling out my intake form and I go, here it is. You know, I put my the clipboard down and I go, everything I expected to happen is going to happen. You know what I mean? We're going to bump heads and ask me where I'm from. This is the story of my life. You know, I know how it ends. He walks up and he extends his hand and he says, hey, my name is Mario. I've never seen you here before. Would you like some water or something? And i remember being shocked like you know everything i thought was going to happen didn't happen instead he was extending himself to me i shook his hand and then because of my experiences my mind went to the extent to say well he just walked up so he could read your tattoos he's not a stupid one Mm -hmm. you know he's smarter than the average bear he just he did a respectful move but in actuality he just walked up to see to read your tattoos to Mm -hmm. see where you're from and then paranoia set in Mm -hmm. and all these feelings that I had normally experienced throughout my life, which is trauma, which I didn't know what it was called back then was starting to kick in. So the first time I came to homeboys, I fled, I couldn't handle it. It was too much. There was the people were too nice to me. You know, I would hear, I was hearing people say, Oh, I love you. And they were giving hugs. And I was like, what is this? You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, hell not. (laughs) So I came and I, and I kind of fled, you know? And then the second time, um, Emily Chapa, uh, who seen something in me that I couldn't see myself and who was a woman, um, and for whatever reason I trusted her, she began to work with me. And she would talk to me outside on the sidewalk and we would have like these little therapy sessions on the side of the building, right? And so she began to work with me and I, and I felt trust in that, And I felt trust in her. And little by little, you know, she would have me come in the building and meet other people. And then um, I remember one day she told me, she's like, you need men in your life. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? You need men in your life because I can only take you so far as a woman. You know, there's Mm -hmm. things that you're going through that as a woman, I really don't know to the extent of of how I can help you. And you need healthy relationships with men. And Mm -hmm. I remember thinking like, hell nah, like healthy relationships (laughs) with men. Like, I don't need no man in my life. I need a woman (laughs) in my (laughs) life. Nah, but I, I... it was it was her. I I felt like I just wanted her to be the only person that knew my secrets that mm. because there was something about her, you know, and basically, you know, she started to introduce me to people and I started to watch people. You know what I mean? Like I started to see I want to see where their how their walk is and if everything they're saying, if they're living, it, you know, so for months I watched fools, you know, and to see if they were really about everything they said they were about. And I don't know how it happened, but there's so many different experiences that I had that begin to reshape, you know, the way that I viewed myself. Because the the truth of the matter is, I I saw myself as a person that was undeserving Hmm. because of all the things I have been through, you know? And as I look back, I used to say it, like I had the answers to my own questions, but I never really paid attention, right? When I was growing up, I used to like find myself in different relationships or whatever the case was, right? Around people that would say, oh, I care about you. I love you, Jose." There's something special about you. And I remember being young and saying, how could you love me, homie, when my own mother didn't love me? Like, how could you say you love me when my heifer doesn't love me? There's no way that I was able to fathom those emotions or those feelings because the relationship with my mother was so tainted and it was so broken and so much pain out of, came out of it. But as I started to do the work and process, like, some of the things I had done, I started to pay attention to like my mother's journey, you know, and some of the things that possibly happened to her, you know, and, and how they affected her and had inspired her decisions. And the truth of the matter, and, and I say this and people trip out, I feel like my mother, she loved me. I know she loved me. I know my mother loved me. She carried me for nine months, you know, and she gave birth to me. And I know, I know that my mother loved me. And as I look back, I see all the moments that she tried, but. My mom didn't have what I was able to receive her at Homeboys, right? But I feel like my mother died so that I was gonna be able to live one day. Hmm. And I know that's gotcha, and that shit even like gets me emotional to say that. But I feel like my mother's death inspired me to live. You feel me? Hmm. And had that not happened, I would have never started to question like being from the bottom. I would have never questioned, like, why I joined the gang. I would have never questioned the life that I was living. My my mother gave me more in-depth than she was able to give me on this earth when she was alive. And our relationship, because I was able to look back and look at the mistakes I made and then look at the reasons why I made those mistakes, I was able to liberate my mother, you know, and I was able to liberate myself. And I was able to heal and mend that relationship, even though she's not physically here, you know. And as I see people come through these doors, I watch them and I go like, I see, I see homegirls come in and I go, I see hints of my mother. And there's times I even laugh and chuckle to myself because I think like what my mother would have done had she been given the opportunity that I was given. You know what I mean? She would have taken it and ran with it. Um, But that's what led me to homeboys, you know, and the beautiful thing about what we do here is we have all these systems in place and structure and we have an 18 month training program. We have case management. We have therapy. We have a workforce development department and we have like six social enterprises and businesses that we use as training platforms. But above everything, what we do is we create a community of like sanctuary safety of kinship where people can begin to talk about what they've been through and can start to heal from that stuff. And, you know, it's it's just, it's amazing to now be a director here and be able to work with those same people that walked through the doors that, you know, the communities I once came from. So, yeah, I'm grateful. Want
1: me to go? <laughs> I think you need to go first. Okay. <clears throat> One of the things Thank you for that. And thank you for sharing that story with us. Um, it was a very beautiful story. It, 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 it touched our hearts. We're breathing here. <laughs> I realized that we started breathing, taking our deep breaths
0: together. At as the we're, same time.
1: As we're listening to you. And one of the things that I want to ask, because we will have um, a number of listeners who will understand your story and who have are in the same place um where you have been previously and so what would you say to those who have a disconnection with their mother Hmm. um but their mother is still alive
0: Hmm.
1: and and you know if, if you were given that opportunity and your mother before she passed, to to mend that relationship, what would that have looked like?
2: Hmm. Um, it would have looked like being honest. You know, for years I lied to myself, and um, I remember one time. So my mother had like been with different men, right? And every every man that she every man that she was with, the relationship that I had with those men was very unhealthy. You know, they treated me bad from a young age you know even like so we all have different dads there's five of us and we have different dads and um you know i remember like being young like six years old and one of her boyfriends you know telling her like i don't want your son in my car you know what i mean like i don't want him in my car dirty and my shit and i begin to develop these calluses at a young age mm-hmm. i remember at a young age um standing there watching my mother drive off and and really being like i don't care like that's her life, you know, and I'll, I'll stay here with my grandmother. Mm-hmm. And so at a young age, begin to develop these calluses. Oh, just give me one second. Keep these in the front. All right. And um, so I was hurt, you know what I mean? And because I was hurt, I developed this armor, I guess you would say, you know, mm-hmm. to really not let people in, especially her, because, you know, she was I feel like I was hurt the most by that relationship I had with my mother so anyway I would lie a lot to myself and I would I would really just for the most part deny the fact that I really yearned for her love and I yearned for her attention so what I would do was I would act the opposite and I would act like I fight a her. Mm-hmm. and so what I would say to uh, somebody that's struggling with that is be honest with yourself above everything be honest with yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it is something that you need, be able to, you know, be brave enough to articulate what you need, uh, because I wasn't able to back then. Mm-hmm. And I'll give you an example. So one time, you know, she was with this other dude and we, we really didn't get along for nothing. And I had just got out of prison from doing my first term. And because of the way I was living, I was like, hey, when I see this food's on and cracking, like there's nothing that anybody's going to do to get in the way of us, you know, getting at each other. Mm-hmm. He didn't really want that. You know what I mean? He acted like if as if he wanted it. He treated my family bad while I was in prison. He got on the phone a couple of times and disrespected me. But he really didn't want to go that route. And he was using her to kind of like be the bridge between, you know, him and I. But I was so upset and angry. I was like, there's nothing that's going to stop this from taking place. So she left my grandmother's house. She left and she was living in the streets because she was so afraid of us making contact with each other in a negative way that she would rather sleep in the streets Hmm. but one day she calls and it's raining and she says hey jose can you guys make amends you know can you guys put this you know under the bridge like can this be you know can you guys fix this and i was like there ain't no fixing that shit like there's no fixing that the only way we're gonna fix it is if we get down with each other and she goes please mijo i love you you know i'm your mother and i disrespect that say you're nothing to me if you choose that man Stay with that phone. And you're nothing to me. When I hung the phone up, I just, I couldn't even control it. I began to cry. Like, I was sobbing like a baby. And somebody that was there asked me, like, what's wrong with you? Why are you crying? And I couldn't even answer why. I was just so hurt because I lied what I was saying. Hmm. It wasn't the truth. I really wanted to tell her, just come home, mom. Just forget everything and just come home. I love you i miss you mom but i wasn't able to say that so i lied to myself and you know looking back i feel like if i would have just been more honest with myself things we could have had a better relationship and i don't live in regret but for whoever is going through something like that i would say don't lie to yourself be honest with yourself and it's if it's unhealthy that's fine but still don't lie to yourself And, and 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 you know and deny yourself from the needs that you deserve you know what i mean
0: and when you were speaking i immediately thought of my late sister um who we lost last march and um and i think about the many times where her and i um we would get into it about boundaries because she struggled with addictions and uh there was times where we had to put up boundaries uh, for children in the home and, and to keep children safe. But so many times wanting to say like, and I can just, I can hear, like, I could literally hear myself saying, but just come home, like, just come home, you know, just be safe, you know? And, and, and so I, I, I felt that (laughs) I felt that. And obviously Terry felt it too. And so thank you for that. Um, because I think that one of the things that we we often talk about, Terry and I talk about is even the relationships that we have with our fathers, for example, who are residential school survivors, and um, all of the experiences that her and I have had uh, as young people who um, just wanted our dads to come home, you know uh, from you know lots of different things and so Uh, thank you for that because that I know that resonates with us and I know it's going to resonate with, with our listeners as well. Um, One of the things that I've heard you talk about uh, Jose in, in it was actually in your, without your permission podcast, because you do have a podcast as well. And um, one of the things that you talked about in that podcast that hit me like right in my chest when I heard it was about, the story of getting a pair of pants. And I don't know if you'd be willing to share that story with us or tidbits of that story or what that may, what that means, because people are going to be like, what do you mean? Um, would you mind sharing a little bit about that? Because I think that would make connections for folks about why, um, about your story and about that yearning for your mother and the story of getting those first pair of pants. Yeah,
2: um, so like a lot of the stuff, that that took place at childhood was tied to poverty, you know, <clears throat> like growing up in poverty, growing up without certain, not even luxuries, but necessities, right, mm-hmm. like clothing. So I just remember growing up poor, and um, the house that we grew up in, there was no time to really like for the the adults in the house because of you know, also to some of the choices they had made, the lives that, that they were living that they were living. There was really no focus or attention to, like, even basic needs or necessities, right? Like food, um, even silver. I tell homies, I go, look, man, I grew up, and we didn't have, like, cubs and different glassware and silverware. We had, like, old mayonnaise jars and pickle jars. We used whatever we had, you know, at mm-hmm. our convenience for for basic necessities. So, like, clothing, right? And I remember being young, my grandma would buy us khakis <clears throat> that were overly sized, so if she had enough money to buy us khakis, like Dickies or whatever, they were overly sized so that we can use them for like three, four years. Right. And they were super long. So she would like hem them up. She would hem them up and stitch them. So they were like stitched. There was a line. And every year she would like pull them down and like stitch them again. Right. And so you would go to school with like this white line around your pants. And homers like, what is that? Though? Like Every year she would unstitch them so growing up you know we were you know we would get clowned on made fun of whatever the case was and it happened to be um right before junior high school so my cousin got jumped into the hood first my cousin who was wise beyond his years his name is marlo and this this kid was just oh my god he was like a brother to me you know he would always make sure that i was safe if i got stuff in school he always took care of me looked out for me and you know, when we were about 11 years old, 10, 11, we go to my grandmother's backyard. He tells me, he goes, hey, no matter what happens, promise me that we're not going to get jumped into the hood. And I say, yeah, you know, for sure. We shook hands. like, I'm not going to get in. All right. It's like he needed to hear it. <clears throat> you know, he was so worried. We understood our circumstances. We knew that there was hopelessness all around us. Mm-hmm. But we made a pact with each other not to get in. So fast forward a little bit right before junior high school, he gets in. Right before I started junior high school, i get jumped in. And there was a lot leading up to it. My mom had got hooked on meth. You know, there was no father in sight. I didn't know who my dad was at the time. And we were very poor. Everybody in our house was just going through their own thing, getting high. And so I would leave a lot the house. I, I hated being at home. So anyway, one night I, I choose to make the decision. I go back to my house. There's, a, there's my other cousin and a, one of the homies right there, and they asked me to get in. So I say yes. You know, I was kind of like at my wits end already with life. I was going through a lot. I say yes. We go across the street where my cousin lived. My other cousin, Pinky, she lived there. Um, I get jumped into the neighborhood. And my cousin walks into the house and he comes out with these pair of pants. They're Ben Davises, right? And that was our attire back then. And They were creased. They were permanently creased. So he took them to the cleaners and got them stitched. So the creases were permanent. <laughs> Right? It didn't matter if you ironed them or not, they were going to be creased. So he gives them to me and he says, Try these pants on. And I put them on. And I remember just him like giving me the pants or even the thought of him letting me wear his pants. I felt like, damn, you know, somebody cares a little bit about me. Mm-hmm. Gives me the pants, I put them on. And he looks at me and he says, You could sport those, huh? I mean, Sport those means you could use them, you could sport those pants, homie. Huh? And I'm looking at him like, all right. And then he looks at me, he goes, matter of fact, homie, you can have those pants. They're yours. Those are the best pair of pants I had in my, like I had ever had at, up until that time. The best pair of pants I ever had. I wore those pants every day for like a month straight. Every day I came out, I wore mm-hmm. those pants. I rocked those pants because they were the best item of clothing that I had in my house. Mm-hmm. And on top of that, I felt like this fool cared enough about me to give me some pants. Eight months later, my other cousin, who we made the pact in my grandma's backyard to not get jumped into the the hood, he got shot with a shotgun in the face and he was murdered. Sorry, we are...
1: Recording live here, and we just are doing this
0: through Zoom. So we just had a. On bad.
2: one hand, receiving these.
0: Hello, Jose. Do we got res connections? Jose, can you hear us? Oh. I'm gonna leave it on because yep. I can edit out that little part there. Okay, we just got some. Oh, here we go. We got you back. So the last, yeah, sorry. the last—that's okay. The last thing we heard you say um, was that your cousin was murdered.
2: Yeah. So I was saying that on one hand, I received these pens, right, and kind of like a rights of rights of passage in a sense, but not fully a rights of passage, right? Mm-hmm. Receive these pants and kind of like, all right, you know, I could do this. And then at the same time, lose my cousin because of this lifestyle and because of everything that it stood for and everything it represented. So I was confused, you know, and I was 12, turning 13 years old and I was confused. I was even confused on how I should feel. You know, I remember going to my cousin's car wash and I'm young. And all the homies are there and everyone's angry and upset. And we're watching cars. We're trying to raise money so that we can have, you know, his funeral. And and that this is this is the truth. I remember thinking about him and everybody was calling him by his nickname, whatever. Um, and I just remember thinking like, damn, we, we used to play like X-Men together. You know what I mean? Or we used to play with these army men in my grandma's backyard. And we would hide them from each other, you know? And I remember years later, I mean, this is the trippy part. And I didn't realize that until a writing class. I took a writing class here and I was like writing my story. And years after my cousin had got killed, I would still go to my grandma's backyard. And I remember when nobody was looking, I would like dig up dirt to see if any of the army men that we had hidden were still there. And that's what I remembered about the relationship I had with my cousin. It wasn't the gangster life. It wasn't the glam. People see movies and shit and think like, oh, it's a glamorous gangster life. And it's really not. You know, it's really a sad, hopeless way of living. You know what I mean? And death is at every corner. But then I remember, you know, kind of getting mature in that life and going, well, this is it. Like, this is my life. What am I going to do now? There's no turning back now. And then going to juvenile hall and being in juvenile hall and those experiences also like shaping the way I saw myself, because it's it's got gotcha for any kid to to have to go through stuff like that. And as I look back now, I was a kid, you know, even though I felt like I was older and that I was responsible for my own life. I was still a teenager. I was a kid to be put into a cell, you know, to have no books, no writing material, to be in a cell for like 23 and a half hours, you know, just left to your own thoughts. I remember I used to pace the cell. I'm like, so bored. You know what I mean? And so sad and bored and angry and all these mixed emotions. And then when they would let us out, we would fight and we didn't even know why, because we didn't even know how to respond to our feelings. I remember one time there was a staff. Her name was Regina. And for whatever reason, she took a liking to me. And there was like an eight man cell. It was an eight man cell. And then there was like two man cells. And I was in the two man cells for a long time. And I would always ask her, like, hey, Regina, like, I want to go into the eight-man cell because you had a little bit more freedom. You know, you had other people in there with you, you kind of walk around a little bit, do push-ups. And she's like, all right. And she let me go to the eight-man cell, and I got into a fight. Like, I was in there like 30, 40 minutes, and I got into a fight. I didn't even know why. Like, I didn't even know. I don't even know what it was over. And then I got put on unit set, and it's it's called unit set, but it's it's unit separation, which means you have to go by yourself in a cell. And I remember being in there, and I was so angry at myself. Like, I I was hitting myself, because I was like, why did you do that? Like, you were given an opportunity to go into an eight-man cell, and you messed it off. But you have to think, being so young and having all these different emotions and not even being able to respond to them or even know how you're feeling. So she brought me out. And I remember her sitting me in the hallway. And just by her bringing me out of my cell, like I felt special, you know. Like I sat there, I remember looking up at her and she's like, Jose, why did you do that? Why did you fight? And I remember thinking to myself, I'll fight a hundred more times if somebody will just pull me out of my cell and talk to me." Hmm. I remember going back to my cell, like I'll fight a hundred more times if somebody will just pull me out and give me the attention that she gave me. You know what I mean? Because that's just what it was growing up in the system. It was just being in these little cells, being in these circumstances and not really have anybody see you, you know, Mm -hmm. for who you who you really were or who you really are, as opposed to seeing you by your moniker or the crime you committed or, you know. And so I don't even know why I went on that. But um, I just think growing up in the system. Right. And going through all these experiences and. You know, and and then eventually coming here and and realizing all this stuff, like realizing, you know, what I had found, what I had been through. It was so liberating.
0: And so uh, throughout all this, uh, me and Terry were writing notes and I have so many different things written down. You talked about the importance of story. You said something about eating dinner together and just that in itself, because we've talked about, you know, how do we how do we create kinship and connection at home and something like eating dinner together and how you used to watch Family Matters and just want to eat dinner together, right? And how those things are such simple ways that we can connect with family. And even if we don't talk, it's just the act of sitting together and then eventually learning to talk at the dinner table, et cetera. You talked a lot about trust, uh, creating communities of kinship. You talked about responses and how if you're not... He when Jose was speaking about that, I thought about like how we've talked about, like, if you're not taught how to regulate your emotions, your responses are going to be based on that. Right. So even just that wanting to fight, not knowing why, being angry, not knowing why, you know, all those things just resonated with me. And then the other thing uh, that you talked about was and you said it and I don't remember exactly how you said it, but you said we were surrounded by hopelessness or hopelessness was all around us. And so kind of to think about wrapping up our conversation, how do you go from like this being surrounded by hopelessness or being immersed in it to coming to this place of resilience and, or, or always being resilient because even in hopelessness, there's still resilience. But how do you just, how do you do what you do, you know? And how do you, when I met you, I saw somebody who was extremely inspiring, inspiring to folks like myself, everyone around you. I've told you, you carry this energy with you where you're just, if you ever meet this man, you will get this, like, he's so gentle and kind and, and you just carry this like healing energy. You really do. And so where, like just thinking about the work that you do in the community and coming from that place of being immersed in hopelessness to this place of uh, really clear resilience or maybe frame it this way where do you, where does your hope come
1: from hmm.
2: um you know like i'm amazed like i'm as there's sometimes where i sit back and i go i'm just so amazed by where my life has taken me like this journey i'm like i'm amazed by the journey itself i'm amazed by the possibilities because I know where I was at. Like I, I seen it, my eyes saw, you know what I mean? I, I seen, I knew what it was like to be in this box. I knew what it was like to survive being in prison and the county jail and all that darkness. And like, I feel like my eyes have also seen the light. You know what I mean? And I'm amazed by the light. And I'm amazed by when people um, like see somebody as if they're seeing them for the very first time, the power that that has. The impact that that has and the ripple effect that that has on everybody around, everybody in the vicinity of that, you know, um, because we all have going back to the story. We all have a story and we all tell a story. You know, we all have a story about somebody else. We have a story about ourselves and we have a story about everything around us. So I'm amazed how stories can get flipped upside down in an instant. You know what I mean? I'm amazed by what took place for me right here in this building within Homeboy Industries. Uh, I'm amazed by how pure Father Greg's love is. Mm -hmm. And so, um, because of what I was able to experience, like somebody seeing me for the first time, I wanna see everything in my life as if I'm seeing it for the very first time, as if it's brand new, as if I was born today. I just open my eyes and I'm seeing everything that's in front of me as if I'm seeing it for the very first time without any stories without any connection to a story that my mind could possibly tell me because it i mean it happens to the best of us but i feel like i'm amazed by the possibility you know and because i got to experience it firsthand and then not only did i get to experience firsthand i got to sit back and watch others experience it i'm inspired by that you know and that's like where my hope comes from because i see so many people walk through these doors I see women come through these doors that were in my mother's situation and get their children back, you know, and, and, and be moms. You know what I mean? I see fathers walk through these doors and be a part of their children's lives. You know, I see people that were hopeless walk through these doors and find hope and whatever that is, whether it's art or yoga or meditation or prayer or ceremony or writing, um, i see them find hope and that shit inspires the hell out of me you know the possibilities inspire me and i feel like it's within all of us because we were all once children and so i think about what does that mean to be you know a child what does that mean and i think about like why wasn't i able to be anything else well because i wasn't able to be a son first so there's a story in g's book right and g uh is writing about this homie who's big all tatted back and he barely gets out he calls Father G and G picks him up and he takes him to JCPenney. And they're at JCPenney and everybody in line is like looking at this phone. they're scared of him. You know what I mean? Because he's just this big-ass gangster, right? <laughs> and, they, and they leave. He gets his clothes. They leave and G drops him off. Father G goes home, goes to sleep. And in the middle of the night his phone rings. And it's this homie that he just picked up earlier. And on the phone, he answers the phone and G's like, yeah, what's up, son? You know? And he's taken aback because the homie on the line says hey you're like a you know all my life you've been like a father to me right and he's like "Yeah, son, of course so he's like you're like a father you're like my father then right and he says yeah of course son he says so if you're my father then that means i'm your son right Mm -hmm. and he says yeah you're my son he says all right then you'll be my father and i'll be your son and he says all right he hangs up the phone I thought about that, and I was coming back. Uh, I was with two homies, and I was with Father G, and I was coming back. And Richard, actually, who's on the podcast with me, he calls me. And he was in Atlanta. I was supposed to be with him to go do a talk out there. He calls me, and he had just read that part in the book. And he says, hey, you're my brother, huh? And I say, yeah, you know, I'm like, you know, you're like my brother. And he says, all right, we're brothers then. he says, uh, I just realized something, homie, that we were supposed to be sons first. Hmm because until we can have we were born right and when we're born we're born as sons and daughters right that's our first role so my first role coming out of the womb is to be a son right so if i don't get to be a son first how can i be anything else how can i be a father how can i be a husband how can i be a brother how can i be a friend if i never first inhabited my first role which was being a son so what i realized is that yes i was I'm a child still sometimes. I'm still a son and I allow myself to be a son. You know, I allow myself to receive love. I allow myself to be that childlike mind, seeing everything as if I'm seeing it for the very first time. Because if I could be that, I could be anything else, homie. I could be everything else. I could be a dad. I could be a husband. I could be a brother. I could be a friend. I could be a director. As long as I'm a son first, first, I could be anything else and everything else. So that's where my hope and my inspiration comes from. And I try to stay in that energy. I try to wake up every day and say, today's new. You know, Yesterday's gone, tomorrow's not here. This is the only thing that exists. And I want to see everything that I see as if I'm seeing it for the very first time. Even that fly. <laughs> Or whatever that is that's bothering you guys.
0: (laughs) It's a fly and it won't leave us alone. So people are going to be able to see us going like this. And the energy that you have. Does that make sense? Yes. No, it totally. That absolutely makes sense. That peace around fulfilling that first role. And if you've never had the opportunity to fulfill that first role. And that just speaks to Wakutuin, right? That speaks to like that kinship and the relationship and the first relationship that you're meant to have is to be a daughter or a son and that ugh. yeah Well,
1: and even the piece within our culture where we we traditionally adopt one another as 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 you know as sisters as brothers and i remember after um my grandmother had passed and her sister called and so it was my mom's mom that had passed and uh her older sister called and it was after the funeral And she called to check in on my mom, but she, you know, she said, "I'm your mom now," Hmm. right? Right? And so, within our own our own cultures, how do we take care of one another in that relationship to each other in family? And so. You know, we do that with one another. You know, we have our sisters, and people get people get this fly keeps coming around us. uh,
2: That's a relative, though, no? Don't you have to treat it like a relative? Treat the fly like a relative. (laughs) That's
0: our relative. (laughs) Oh my god! We actually planned to get rid of that before this, but that didn't happen.
1: (laughs) But thank you for that. Um,
0: Mm -hmm. That was a great way
1: to wrap up this conversation and i really appreciate you taking the time to share with us your stories and and uh and really be open to to everybody and to our listeners and so what what is the name of your podcast if you
2: oh, it's mentioned. called without your permission try and say
1: that can say that again
2: you say without up. your it's not, it's without your permission but i say it like without your permission without your permission <laughs> that's how you say it
0: um yeah and i've used your podcast in my classes at the university um and i highly recommend uh i use an episode a lot the one that you did with a social worker i think her name was crystal
2: crystal yeah Yeah.
0: and so i use that episode quite a bit and uh and i've listened to many episodes and it's a great podcast so thank you for sharing that and we'll make sure that we put that in the in the link we'll share your podcast as well Thank you so much. We know that you're incredibly busy. We know that you've got tons of things uh, that you're doing all the time uh, and that a lot of people uh, need you in their life. And so thank you so much uh, for spending this time with us. We really appreciate you. uh, And we can't wait to release this episode. So we'll be uh, talking soon, Jose. Um, Thank you again. Appreciate you.
2: Two crees in a a pod. Two crees in a pod. Natani means yeah. Let's go.
0: They push us to this point, frustrations of a common man Manifest the destiny, preach and pledge the promised land I'm stuck between taking my journey, live with no honor Like what's the use of my kids, can't taste clean water A child born into a world, revolution's not a choice Fighting to be heard so we make them hear our voice Remember ancestors, anguish lightning in our veins Hear it in the language when they are kitchen for the rain I am product of people that persevere persecution Paint me so creator sees me if I go out shooting Experience our pain when our women disappear daily Anxious to be angry, pacifists might hate me Trolls on the internet constantly trying to bait me We move in silence, cover of the night Learning from the woods, in the forest Tracking enemies in the woods Reincarnations of warriors, riding for salvation Or are we false prophets when we submit to temptations? Colonization is a hell of a drug We all seem to go crazy when we fall in love I said, colonization is a hell of a drug We all seem to go crazy when we fall in love
1: I said, Two Crees in a pod.